Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm doing great. It's interesting. We're going to be talking about the Clash of Champions in, well, 35 from 1997. And ironically, here I am, uh, August, whatever it is, 22nd, I think today is. Well, maybe? Today, today's the 24th, but whatever. 20, 24th. I'm a, I'm a couple days behind. But uh, as we're gearing up for TV this week, all of it leading us to the Clash of the Champions here in WWE. So it's a ironic twist of fate. Of course, we're full circle, and we appreciate you guys joining us on the 26th. And as you march towards Clash of the Champions, I am marching towards StarCast. This is the first time you've missed one, Eric. You're big dogging me. You're too big for, for, for us little people now. Look at you. I kind of feel bad about that. <laughs> and I didn't officially tag. I didn't officially tag out of that, did I? No, you didn't. I just knew, you know, it's probably. I mean, goddamn, it's not like you don't have a bunch of other stuff going on. You know, you're. Yeah. You're and, to- and here, it's good that you just, you know, kind of wiping off the slate because the truth of the matter is even though i'd want to do it and i can tell you right now i'll be there you know things happen plans change rather abruptly and uh, i'd hate to make that commitment and not be able to show up so yeah i'm gonna miss it well we are making the commitment that uh we are gonna bring you a brand new 83 weeks each and every week and this week is no different i'm excited about this clash of the champions 35 is really the last one it's uh, august 21st 1997 and if you've listened to any of my podcasts by now, you know that 1997 is my absolute favorite year. And, uh, I'm really excited to cover this one because this is the last one. And you know, we recently just talked about this, that clash of the champions sort of became lower priority in the nitro era. Uh, nitro was, uh, out front and what everybody inside the organization was most focused on. Whereas once upon a time, this was a special sort of WCW's version of Saturday night's main event. So we're going to, uh, go ahead and do this a little differently today. We're going to do a watch along, which we've done a few of lately. And I figure since this is the last clash of the champions, it was worthwhile. So if you haven't already fire up your WWE network and uh, find the clash of the champions from August 21st, 1997 clash of the champions 35, uh, they have recently redesigned the network. So if you're doing this for the first time, since they've done that, you need to click in ring at the top. Scroll down until you see WCW and then slide over to the right. There you'll see clash of the champions. And this should be right at the top because it was the very last one. And right now we're going to have you go ahead and visit the WWE network and uh, find clash of the champions. 35 August 21st, 1997, uh, Eric, I'm going to have you give us a countdown. And when you say press play, we'll press play and we will be off and running here, baby. All right, we're going to give it a five count in five, four, three, two, one. DDP, Jeff Jarrett, Ric Flair, Kurt Hedding, Mongo. It is indeed the Clash of the Champions. And what was live? Lex Luger. Throwing up the diamond cutter, Scott Hall, Macho Man, Randy Savage. This is just good. This is going to be a fun show. Lots of stars on here. You're pulling out all the stars. And I think what most fans remember most about this show. Well, maybe, maybe you remember, do you remember off the top of your head, what you guys did that was different or unique or noteworthy? What, what, what was everybody talking about when this show was over? Do you recall? 
Oh, God, I do not. Absolutely do not. And I didn't want to watch this one um, in advance because I enjoy watching these watch-alongs for the first time. So, no, I can't remember what uh, what was going on in August of 1997. Well, how about uh, – hell, th- hell, I thought it was August 22nd today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. I appreciate you having a good sense of humor about that. How about uh, Sting's fucking bird? That's what we're going to talk about today. Oh, that's right. Actually, I saw that on a thumbnail on the WWE Network, that big old scary-looking vulture poised on the ring ropes. That was pretty cool. As as your boy Tony Schiavone called it, the buzzard, here to pick the bones of WCW. <laughs> well, that's a cynical view, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, that's Tony Schiavone, right? Clash of the Champions here. This is in Nashville, and uh, what do you think of the uh, presentation? This is the the traditional Clash set. It feels like you guys have used this um, this look and feel for a few years at this point. Uh, it's not um, necessarily a new expense for you guys, and it's. I mean, here's the deal. It is it is simple, but I like it. What say you? I agree. It's simple and effective. It kind of harkened back to the early days of the Clash of the Champions on TBS. Obviously, we've got a three-man booth here with Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan and your man, Tony Schiavone. Our man, Tony, the world's man, Tony Schiavone. So there were some differences and some things that made it uh, a little more progressive than perhaps it was years previously. But it did have more of a traditional feel to it. We should, uh, probably mention that this is the era. I think this is, uh, one of the moments when it became apparent that you guys were about to launch thunder, the August 30th edition of the pro wrestling torch from Wade Keller. The headline that week was WCW salaries, comma roster expected to expand for new show. The Thursday show will force WCW to renegotiate top stars contract. But plenty of money to go around. And of course, what we're talking about is thunder is a thing. And as a result, clash of the champions becomes even less important because now instead of having a show later in the week as a special, as a one-off on TBS, they're going to have their own regular weekly recurring show. And we know that that's not something you were exactly thrilled to be doing. No, we weren't excited about it then, uh, going into Thunder. It was something that was mandated by Ted Turner. That It, 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 it wasn't an option. No one was called to vote. <laughs> uh, we were simply told we were going to do it. And it, you know, going into it, we knew it was going to be difficult. Uh, coming out of it, we had no idea how difficult. It's fun to go back and watch this era of WCW, though, because, you know, you, I mean, just look at Sting here. And I think I can see what you're talking about for the first time. I can't believe I'm about to admit this, but sting does not look like he's in the best shape as he climbed over that guardrail. See, finally, after all this time, you and I have spent together doing this podcast. You're finally seeing things through my eyes. That's good. Now, of course, what we're looking at here is sting stalking JJ Dillon. And and you and I've recently talked about this every week. JJ Dillon's going to come down, extend another offer with another member of the NWO. Uh, he's doing whatever he can to try to get sting to sign a contract. And this feels like a bit of a freestyle where perhaps sting sees a Hulk Hogan sign in the crowd and pulls JJ over to look at it. Hey, JJ sting wants Hogan. Of course, uh, sting not talking here, which is really fascinating when you look at it and you sort of broke that down in one of our recent episodes, 
that you would not only have this really long storyline build, but that you would have a guy who didn't even freaking talk the whole time. You know, that's something I think that's often overlooked in uh, storytelling in sports entertainment is we're we become so accustomed over the decades now, uh, and particularly the last two decades with the amount of television that's going on. And, and there's so much of it. It's so fast paced as we watch Jeff Jarrett and Deborah making their way to the ring. But there's so much content. And we, we've, I think, over the last couple of decades, as I said, we've gotten into this um, creative formula, uh, almost a rut, I'll suggest, where the, the commentary, the narrative between the, the talent has to kind of go back and forth. It's like watching a tennis match. Um, there's something to be said for a mystery. There's something to be said for, for creating a story or a character where you're constantly getting the audience to wonder what's going through that character's mind, as opposed to hearing it over and over and over again, or different variations of it. I've said a million times, you know, when I've talked about some of the success that we had during this era, a lot of it had to do with creating stories and laying out formats that induced the audience to ask questions as opposed to making statements. You know, who's the third man is the perfect example of that, the highest profile example of that. But sometimes even in the way we would lay out a show, you would end this segment, hopefully, not all the time, but hopefully uh, often enough where there was a sense of what's going to happen next. Certainly, we always wanted to end shows that way to to drive tune in, you know, where cliffhangers always work. But sometimes, you know, just breaking out of that rut of a definitive ending or definitive declarative statement at the end of a promo um, can be really, really effective. And I think the Sting storyline that we were just talking about is illustrative of that. Uh, it, it puts it into context in a real way. Of course, what we've got coming to the ring right now is uh, the United States Championship on the line here with Jeff Jarrett, Steve Mongo, McMichael, and referee Randy Anderson, who unfortunately no longer with us. Jeff Jarrett certainly is. I see him almost every day here in Stanford. <laughs> and I have to say, I really like working with Jeff. I've uh, I've grown to really appreciate uh, Jeff in a whole different way, having the opportunity to work with him the way that I am now. He's he's a good man. He's not, he's not only smart, he's a charming dude, right? He knows how to read a room. And as uh, my friend Jim Valley says, he has uh, soft skills. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But he is smart. He's got a lot of experience and he's got a good feel for things. And I, like I said, I really, and he's got energy and enthusiasm. You know, he thinks very progressively, uh, which is something that I wouldn't have ever guessed uh, about Jeff. But he does, you know, think, as they say, outside of the box in many respects. This uh, quarter hour we're watching right now, I got a 2.6. If you're not watching with us, you should be because you're going to get a real treat with Tony Schiavone, Dusty Rhodes, and Bobby Heenan on commentary. Uh, of course, you're not hearing that you're hearing us, but you should check it out just to hear that one last time. Dusty Rhodes calling a clash of the champions just feels like the all is right with the world. This match here would be described in the torch as being a pretty basic match with some out of the ring brawling. And, uh, of course we're going to have a little surprise a little later here in the match. What, um, looking back hindsight being what it is. Do you think you made the right call bringing Mongo out of the booth 
and getting him in the ring? Mm, no, I think that was a mistake. Um, I understand, you know, when I say I understand why we did it, of course, I understand why we did it because I did it. Um, I know why I did it. Uh, and I guess it was one of those things on paper kind of made sense. He was very anxious to get physically involved. Just that was Steve's nature at that time. It made sense to me on paper, but at the end of it all, I think it diminished the potential he had as a color commentator because the wrestling audience just, they didn't buy it. You know, he wasn't skilled enough really in this match. I think he does okay in this match, at least what I've seen so far, because it is very basic. And that was the only type of match that Mongo could have was a very basic match because he didn't have a decade or more experience under his belt in the ring. Great athlete, tough guy, but that doesn't necessarily make you a great performer in the ring. So in retrospect, yeah, it was, it was a mistake on my part. No doubt about it. Tell everybody a little bit about, you know, what Mongo was doing prior to you recruiting him for WCW and, and why it made sense for him to be on the mic for you guys. Well, Mongo was doing a lot of commentating. Uh, I think he was covering the Chicago Bears in a local market in Chicago, and he was a very high-profile guy. He, you know, in 1997, he wasn't that far removed from being a, a pretty high-profile Super Bowl champion on a, on a legendary Chicago Bears team during that time. So he had, a, as they call it in, in entertainment, a high Q factor. Uh, but he was also known as a tough guy, and he was articulate. He was funny. You know, when I say articulate, I mean in an entertaining kind of a way. He was not going to sit down and quote Shakespeare, but he could be a very entertaining guy. He, Unfortunately, Steve was a lot more entertaining off mic than he was on. I think he, he was trying a little too hard or perhaps he was just not as familiar as he wished he was on the mic. So a lot of his charisma, unfortunately, often didn't translate as well as I wish it would have, but he had all the bona fides, you know, like I said, he was a sportscaster. He was high profile. Um, he had a great voice and he had a big character. That's the other reason I liked him, uh, behind the desk is he had a very, I mean, he came to, he came to the ring, uh, with Pepe, the little pet chihuahua, you know, quirky as it may be. It was a unique characteristic of and, and he loved that dog, by the way. That wasn't just a prop dog. That was his and Deborah's dog. So there were a lot of reasons why I think it, it made sense to put him behind the microphone, but not necessarily in the ring. And like I said, even in this job, this is not a bad match by any standard. It, very basic, but not bad. Watching Mongo trying to sell here is rather sobering. <laughs> That's brutal. I mean, what's wrong with this match? Tell me from your point of view so far and what you've seen, what's Steve doing wrong or what could he be doing better in your opinion yeah i'm just trying to be entertaining and irreverent my apologies let's do talk no 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 no. that's okay i was just curious i'm just no. curious about me. i'm always curious what other people think if i'm not looking at things the right way i'd like to know it no i actually um how about this though one of the all-time greats eddie guerrero that's what we were waiting for I'm sure this is I mean, I'm sure this was not one of the Eddie Guerrero's highlights. I'm sure when Eddie Guerrero went back and looked at, you know, some of his great matches, this might not have been one of them. Or involvements, I should say. I, I was really curious. I'd like to go back and really understand what the story was, you know, between Eddie and Jeff. I'm not sure I quite understand why Eddie got involved. Obviously, I don't recall the storyline, but happened pretty fast. And bam, all of a sudden, Mongo is your United States champion. He's going to show up on Nitro the following week. And uh, Eric, you may recall that Nitro is where Arn Anderson formally announces that 
He's not only retiring, but he is giving his spot in the horseman to Kerr Henning. And it's a big moment, a real moment. And, uh, people still talk about it to this day. So uh, it's an interesting time in WCW where there's lots of moving parts, not only with the NWO, but the four horsemen. And obviously the, uh, cruiserweight division is rocking fun time to be a wrestling fan here in 1997. It sure was. It was a fun time to be a wrestling executive in 1997 too. And, oh, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know it? Darn it. Jeff Jarrett loses. This is the first time we've seen Jeff Jarrett and you didn't have an aneurysm about his outfit. I've gotten used to it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know how sometimes, you know, you get a headache, you wake up in the morning or you get a headache in the evening and it really bothers you. And then after about an hour and a half, you just kind of get used to it. Here's Here's your man, Alex Wright. My man, you're the man who hired him, gave him. No, I didn't hire him. I didn't hire him. And your father-in-law was higher on Alex Wright than anybody in WCW. Well, I think Barnett was maybe a little higher on him. We didn't have those conversations, but I wouldn't argue that. But Uh, nonetheless, your, your father-in-law, the nature boy, Ric Flair was really high on, on Alex Wright. Can I just tell you that this segment right here gets a 3.1. So this actually gets a better rating than the, uh, the match we just saw, which is kind of hard. Well, it typically shows build or you hope that they do from the beginning to the end. Typically, um, shows do build that that's at least what we strive for. Uh, so I don't think, you know, comparing typically, I wouldn't compare a second segment to a first segment in terms of ratings and suggest that just because one was higher than the other, that it was reflective of the activity that was taking place. This is a talking segment. Alex Wright wasn't that over at the time. He wasn't a main character. Did, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of dick dancers that were following him at the time, but you know, I think that the higher rating probably had a lot more to do with just the natural progression of viewership and viewing patterns. And it did subjective opinions of each segment. I love that they leave this in the network promotional consideration paid for by the following. It's a motel six commercial on the WWE network. How about motel six investment? All these years later, still getting paid off as is with arm and hammer toothpaste and Tootsie rolls. You know, I just had this debate the other day with, uh, your close personal friend, Tony Schiavone, Tootsie pop or blow pop. Tootsie pop by a mile. God, you old motherfuckers. You're going to get it wrong every time. It's blow pop. I love Tootsie Rolls. That was one of my favorite candies when I was a kid. I'd get those big, and they they were like, you could buy the the little ones, the little skinny ones for like two cents. I'd get those big fat ones that look like small logs. Oh, I love those. My goodness. Hey, I do want to ask you about something that happened the next day. Uh, it was in the uh, torch that in Knoxville, Tennessee, I guess you guys had a house show and, uh, flair is going to beat Jarrett Luger is going to beat hall when six submits to the torture rack process. What I just said there, Lex Luger gets a win over Scott hall when six submits to the torture rack. Now here's what happened during the main event, which is Lex Luger and Scott hall fans start throwing trash at Scott hall, including some full cups of soda. And Hall gets on the mic and says he's not going to put up with it and walks back to the dressing room, which I guess is a shoot. He's legitimately upset. 
So Luger and the ref are trying to go back out and, uh, calm everybody down and, and see what they can do to get him back out. There's several awkward minutes before Luger comes back out and ask the fans to give him a chance to kick Scott Hall's butt and ask them not to throw anything. So the match continued, but then the finish is Luger gets six to submit to the rack. And that's the end. Now, whether, you know, it's popular or not throwing trash in the ring sort of became the thing on the heels of bash at the beach, 1996. When did you guys start to think, oh shit, we're taking this too far now. Well, we didn't do things other than, you know, trying to get heat in the ring to tell stories and, and, and build drama. We didn't try to come up with different ways and means by which we could incite that type of behavior. It just kind of naturally occurred because people were really into what we were doing and they were buying the heat that the heels were, you know, creating and you'd get that reaction. Look, I I think once we saw it on pay-per-view, like we did in 96, it started to become a thing at first. It was, wow, that's really great. We got some real heat. They really hate our heels. That'll make it easier to get the baby faces over. All all the reasons why you would embrace that kind of thing. But for me personally, once the fans started throwing, <clears throat> when it started, when they started doing the monkey see, monkey do kind of thing, uh, and then it escalated. Instead of throwing, you know, empty cups and popcorn and whatever that was harmless and made great television. Uh, six months or eight months later, it evolved into D cell batteries and, you know, quarters and things that could actually do some damage. You know, I had somebody threw a roll of dimes in the ring at one point. Uh, I personally, myself and Hulk Hogan were coming out in an entrance at one point and somebody threw a full bottle of beer on, on it. I mean, there was beer in it. I think when they threw it, it probably had the top on it. Uh, obviously it hit the floor and exploded. So I didn't see the top on the beer, but there was enough beer in that bottle to suggest that they threw in an entire, you know, 16 ounce bottle of beer, 12 ounce bottle of beer from way up in the cheap seats had that hit us. And I saw it coming down out of the corner of my eye from, from my right. And I, you know, I stopped and I stopped Hulk from walking into the line of fire. Cause I could literally see it coming from probably the cheapest seats in the arena. And, uh, that, that could have seriously hurt if not killed somebody not not only talent but you know people standing next to the barrier could have you know been a it could have been a bad misfire and ended up in the crowd so for me that's when i realized that you know it was starting to get out of control so what we're watching right now of course is raven really taking it to stevie richards his former lackey from ecw and of course the storyline here is that stevie richards has uh been a trailblazer and pave the way for Raven to get a job here with WCW because he's already signed his contract, but, uh, we have not gotten Raven under contract. He's refused to sign, but he agrees to wrestle here on the clash. And you saw right before the match started, as he's seated in the corner, he calls pins are over, grabs the live mic and says, I've agreed to wrestle for this company, but if I'm going to do so, I'm going to do it on my terms, no disqualification. And so this is a no DQ match now. And uh, even in storyline, they're explaining or on commentary, rather they're explaining that Raven has one leg longer than the other. And he has one boot that has been modified to have a bigger heel on it. So 
Uh, I guess it affects his balance or positioning. And I've always appreciated that you guys pointed that out and had Mike today sort of explain the what for lots of bumps here on the floor from Raven. He did a plancha over the top and now almost like a cactus Jack, like elbow. This is one of the better performances so far that I've seen out of uh, Raven from this era. I mean, he looks uh, inspired. He's, he's crisp. He's moving quickly. Uh, he's believable. I like the pace of the match. Stevie Richards obviously doing a great job. Stevie is a f- phenomenal performer in the ring. He was always in excellent shape and still is. Yeah. He's one of, one of those guys you see 25 years later, and he looks like he's in better shape now than he was then. He, pr- he would probably say that he is as well. And. This is a real innovation here. The drop toe hold onto the chair. I think Raven's the first guy I saw do that. And, uh, I kind of like that spot, the psychology behind it. That's pretty slick. It is slick. And, uh, like I said, this is, I'm really impressed with this match. I, so far it's, it's exceeded my expectations by a mile. What'd you think of, uh, Stevie Richards, Richards presentation? He's got the Daisy Dukes. He's got the midriff shirt. It's airbrushed. It says the perfect weapon on the back. He's calling himself. Dancing, Stevie Richards. Yeah, it doesn't do much for me. It's, I wasn't <laughs> going to say anything. <laughs> you know, it just, it doesn't do a thing for me. I'm sure, you know, there are some people who would be watching this and got a kick out of it, but I certainly was not one of them. Well, I just thought by now, you know, you're getting a good look at Stevie Richards like this. And you, you probably wouldn't even need Blue Chew. Up next, we've got a package here on Ultimo Dragon where Mike Tanay is going to, uh, share a little bit about his backstory and explain a little bit about who he is. And I think, uh, one of the things they're going to explain here is that his name is an ultimate dragon. Uh, even though once upon a time that was, uh, what he was referred to. What about this old power plant promo here? I just was going to say how much I hate this thing. Why? I, I just hate these graphics. Well, and here's a, here's the challenge. You know, graphics like everything else have evolved. You know, so far, so fast in the world of digital. And this was twenty some years ago, but it looks so cartoonish. It doesn't look. You know, the power plant graphics and promos, in my opinion, should have had a much more sporty feel, a sports feel to them. Should have been. It looked powerful to be consistent with the power power plant brand. And those graphics just looked, it looked like something you would advertise children's cereal with. I don't know. Didn't like it at all. It is uh, an interesting idea that you're at this point without question. How about the little promo for new Japan pro wrestling? That's a little weird to see. I mean, I know you guys have a relationship with them, but you know, it's just weird that I mean, I don't think I would have ever guessed that WCW would have went out of business before new Japan, but it is what it is. Do you think it's odd that you guys were legitimately advertising almost like, uh, Hey, want to go to wrestling school? Hey, think you can do this? Just call this number. Come on down. That doesn't seem like a, a very Eric Bischoff thing to do. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I wasn't really convinced it was the right thing to do. But again, this was at a time when we were trying to drive revenues in every possible way. And I guess I was convinced at least to a degree that it was a smart move. But uh, no, I, I agree with you. It, in, in retrospect, it kind of cheapened the, the, the power plants brand, in my opinion. And, and I think it 
really had an adverse effect across the board on talent and the perception of talent, uh, again, in retrospect. And it probably goes down as one of those things I think we could have been better off not doing, no doubt about it. So what do you think about um, Ultimo Dragon's explanation that Ultimo means last student of Bruce Lee? I, you know, I don't know what to think about it. That was Ultimo Dragon's uh, point of view. That was part of the character that he was building and what he was trying to convey. And he had had a, a tremendous amount of success with it in Japan and in Mexico. So there was no reason to talk him out of it. Um, beyond that, I really, you know, don't have much of a comment about it. it was, you know, I, I think a, a lot of the audience probably disconnected with that you know bruce lee had been gone for quite a while by this time right in 1997 he wasn't necessarily a real high profile pop culture kind of character so i I think there was probably a disconnect we should mention that shivani here on commentary is going to say something like from now on uh ultimate dragon will be referred to as ultimo dragons you guys officially make the switch here and i do find it interesting that after the, the, the interesting package and the highlight reel and sort of explaining who he is and, and, and why he's so good and, and why we should care. He's about to lose the TV title to, as you called him, the Dick dancer, Alex, right? There you go. There you go. We've got not sure what the, not sure what the logic was behind that. And clearly you're trying to get a guy over now. Ultimo dragon wasn't a regular, you know, roster member. He was in and out. He was still working in Mexico and still working in Japan. So I'm guessing without, you know, having the ability to kind of go back and look at notes and why we did what we did. The logic was probably let's build him up so that he seems like a very viable, you know, opponent for Alex, Wright, So that when Alex beat him, it, gets Alex over. Um, we were still trying to push Alex pretty hard at this point. That would probably be my explanation as to why we built up this big package. Because if you're going to get a guy over a baby face over, he's got to beat somebody. Or if you're trying to get a heel over, he's got to beat somebody. So as, as opposed to just a character coming in with a cool gimmick. With the uh, rating, cause that's what we're all about at this era of WCW as a recap. The first quarter hour got a 2.6. That was with, uh, Mongo and Jeff Jarrett. We joked that the Alex Wright segment, uh, got a, a 3.1. Well, what we just saw with Raven and Stevie got a 3.4 and we're going to continue to climb here. Just as you said, we might uh, Alex Wright and Ultimo dragon are going to get a 3.5. Sweet. So the momentum continues. What did the show end up doing as a rating? Do you know, uh, let me see. I'll find that for us. When you, when you look back on this, do you, does anything stand out to you about Nashville at all? And you guys, you guys used to run it for uh, your big pay-per-views like Starcade. Now it's Nashville was a little bit of a challenge in that there had been so much wrestling for so many years in Nashville. It was a hot territory, obviously for a long, long time. Um, so the, the audience was a little tough to get motivated because they'd seen so much, but at this point, you know, we were so hot that we weren't nearly as concerned. I think one of the reasons why we didn't run Nashville a lot or consistently over a long period of time was because it was such a tough market for us uh, because they'd seen so much. But by this point, 1997, we could pretty much fill an arena anywhere. And uh, 
and Nashville as a town, I always loved going to Nashville. I just, I like the market. I like the town. I like the restaurants, I like the people, but from a wrestling perspective, it could be tough. Yeah, no doubt about it. it this is, uh, you know, it's interesting too, that you guys open with Jeff Jarrett, because I think a lot of folks know that he was there all the freaking time in Nashville. He was, you know, and that's, and that's, that's a good point. Probably one of the reasons we did that. And, and I, I think most people would, would think, well, why wouldn't you put Jeff Jarrett in the main event? Why wouldn't you have him in a bigger story in Nashville? And I think the answer is because they had seen so much of Jeff Jarrett for so long. It, it just wasn't as big of an attraction for the local market, even though he was from there. The, uh, the show got a 3.64 rating and a 6.36 share, which is uh, obviously a healthy number, but lower than they've been drawing head to head on Monday night raw or against Monday night raw rather. Um, but it does build as we've laid out the entire time. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that the house is not huge. There's only 4,122 fans. It's only a $75,000 gate. And I'm saying only because you guys are doing a multiple of that sometimes four times that sometimes six times that sometimes eight times that just monster numbers, but that's for nitro. And at this point, nitro sort of has the, the name cachet and the swag, not really clash of the champions. That is, that's correct. That's where all the momentum was. And that's one of the reasons why I think in addition to the fact that we had thunder coming down the highway, as you pointed out at the top of the show, there was just no way that this that the Clash of the Champions had that special quarterly feel to it, the way that it had in the past. It wasn't the big dog anymore. Nitro was. Ultimate Dragon's looking really good here, by the way. And I don't know if I mentioned this when I was in Japan last, I think in February, whenever it was. I had a chance to go out and have dinner with Ultimate Dragon uh, on two occasions. What a what a classy individual he is. A very successful, but a super classy guy. I love spending time with him. We should mention Alex, that the. Uh, uh, I was going to say, Alex Wright is uh, definitely putting the boots now to Ultimo Dragon. Somebody's gassed. I think it would be Alex Wright. Three and a quarter stars is what this match gets. The uh, Ravens TV Richards got a star and a quarter. Our opener got a one star. Up next, though, we've got uh, two of the all time greats Chris Jericho and Eddie Guerrero. Wow, I can't wait to see that. Can't wait to see that. Yeah, I mean that's those are those are matches no matter when they took place. When you hear Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero in a match, you know you're gonna get something special. So I'm looking forward to that. Whenever I see uh Ultimo Dragon, I always associate him with Sonny Ono, even if he wasn't with him in storyline. And I know even these days Sonny accompanies him on a lot of his bookings. Those guys just, uh, I don't know why, but Sonny, I know an Ultimo dragon are just like peas and carrots to me. Yeah, they are. And they've become very close friends. Um, since this period of time, since 1997 to this day, they're very close. As you pointed out, you see them together at conventions and autograph signings and independent wrestling events all over the world, really. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of cool when you look back and you, you see relationships that started 20, 25 years ago because of a storyline in wrestling and. You know, guys still stay close to this day. It's always a, 
Uh, just makes you feel good. So uh, we've talked about thunder a little bit. It's going to get kicked off on January 7th, 1998. I assume when you guys have that conversation about, Hey, we're riding the Thursday show. Is it just understood at that point? No more clashes or even here. Did you not know this is definitely the last clash? It, it might just be the last one for now. No, it was part of the conversation earlier on. We look, we tried to, when I say we tried everybody in Turner, myself, Harvey Schiller, Brad Siegel included in those conversations, tried to talk Ted out of doing thunder for all, all the right reasons. And all of us got shut down. Uh, but once we knew that it was going to happen, like I said earlier, it wasn't up for a vote. It wasn't up for discussion. It, we were told it was going to happen. Part of the, I don't want to say compromise because there was no compromise involved, but part of the strategy was right off the bat to, you know, make Clash go away and put all of our TBS eggs in the Thunder basket, so to speak. I know we briefly mentioned it earlier, but the next Nitro is where we would see Arn Anderson give one of the best interviews of this or any year announcing, uh, to the Columbia, South Carolina crowd that he's got nothing left to give and, and he's going to be winding things up and offer a spot to Kurt. Uh, we are actually covering that nitro this week, two days from now on Tony Schiavone's what happened when, and next week here on 83 weeks, we're going to talk about Arn Anderson and we're doing all of this because this is a pretty big moment and a pretty big anniversary in his career, but also too, uh, sometime in September, we will be launching another podcast, unbelievably with Arn Anderson, a guy who has never really quote unquote broken kayfabe or giving you a peek behind the curtain. He's not done a bunch of shoot interviews. And even when he did, he didn't always just, uh, sort of give you the peek. Maybe you were expecting and his book was largely written in character and He's not been overexposed. He's not on social media, but he is, uh, incredibly funny, witty, and one of the best storytellers that maybe fans are going to be surprised with. Would you agree with that, Eric? I, I, you, you could not have possibly understated that anymore. And that's not a criticism. I think the world of Arn Anderson as a performer, I always have, um, he is absolutely one of the funniest people to sit down and talk to, especially when you're talking about wrestling stories or even things that are going on outside of the wrestling business, his, his point of view, his sense of humor, he's got comedic timing, like a professional stand-up comic. He is absolutely one of the funniest people I've ever sat and listened to. He's got a wealth of history and stories and knowledge and experiences that he's going to be able to share on that podcast. And I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that. That's not taking anything away from Bruce or Tony or, or anybody else's podcast in the wrestling business. But I think Arne Anderson is going to pleasantly surprise a lot of people for just because of how interesting he can be and entertaining at the same time. Um, I, I, I look forward to hearing that he's, he's, he's going to be one of your best. I think he's going to be one of your hottest podcasts personally. Well, if you haven't already go follow the show on Twitter, it's at the Arn show. And of course we'll be talking all about Arn Anderson next week. Unbelievably his career cut short when he's just 39 years old, but he still had a lot left to give to uh, the wrestling business. So he assumes a backstage role behind the scenes role. Let's, you know, I know we're going to talk about it a lot next week, but 
when you find out that, Hey, Aaron can't really go anymore. Oh, look, look, check out that acai moonsault. That's really the move that, uh, helped put Ultimo on the map and, uh, one of his more spectacular moves and really just unbelievable for the time period. Of course, now you probably see it every day of the week on some wrestling show somewhere, but he's the first guy to do it and make it look as graceful as that for sure. But Arn Anderson, when uh, his in-ring days are done and, and you know that's it, is it a no-brainer for you to think, well, there's a spot for him backstage. He's got too much knowledge just to cut him loose. There was no question in my mind that we were going to keep him. I had a lot of respect for Arn, not only because of his knowledge, but his ability to manage certain situations. I know it's going to sound ironic given the Sid Vicious story that we're all very well uh, well aware of, but you know, when needed, Arn was one of those go-to guys that could calm a situation down pretty easily or get people that were having a hard time seeing eye to eye, just settle down and start seeing eye to eye. He had great psychology. He could explain why a match had to happen the way it needed to happen or a storyline needed to happen the way it needed to happen or particularly a finish. One of the best finish guys, in my opinion, um, that I had an opportunity to work with. No, no doubt about it. So, no, there was not. And aside, besides that, you know, I was loyal to Arn. You know, he probably didn't realize it as much at the time. Or he, would have, he probably would have disagreed with it at the time because, you know, the way things went down sometimes in the ring, but or storyline-wise. But, um, no, there was no, not even a moment of hesitation to make sure that he was taken care of. And, and we were, it wasn't just taking care of Arn, which was part of it for me because I was loyal to him. And, and wanted to recognize what he contributed to the business, but also saw value in him backstage. I was I was concerned, to be, to be fair, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, so I'll keep this to a minimum, but I was a little concerned about his ability to make the transition. It's hard to go from being one of the boys and, 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 and then all of a sudden becoming management. So I, I was concerned about that, but not about his ability to contribute. I find it interesting that you, you said that I want to have a follow-up, but first, how about this public enemy merchandise commercial? It's not bad, right? I mean, for what it is, it's not bad. It's entertaining. Who would have, uh, put these together for you guys? Uh, probably Mike Weber or somebody on his team, maybe Michael Shockett. Uh, Michael was a really good producer, very creative guy. Uh, it could have been either Michael Shockett or probably Michael Shockett working with Mike Weber. It's fascinating to me that, you know, the WWF had merchandising down pat so well, but when WCW does it, it feels a little fish out of the water. Do you think that you just didn't have the right people in place? Were you looking to bring in other wrestling people or people from perhaps other backgrounds who just had, you know, maybe a power Rangers background or a Disney background or I hate to be so specific, but people who understood, Hey, how you take something that's on the screen and translate it to trinkets that you sell. The honest answer is we were learning on the job. Um, WCW for so long prior to my getting there. And even after I was there as a talent prior to me getting any management position, Licensing and merchandising was almost an afterthought. It didn't get a lot of attention. It didn't get a lot of thought. There was not a lot of resources put behind it, nor a lot of pressure from above to improve upon it. It was just kind of recognized as a a revenue stream that 
you know, it, it's there, it's part of your business, and yes, you want to exploit it. Certainly, we were well aware of the WWE success, but keep in mind, the WWF at the time, the WWF success was also a result of having been in the business for 30 years, having a much stronger brand, being able to sell out arenas and things like that. We we kind of exploded in 96. We went from kind of staggering along and being a distant number two throughout you know the beginning of WCW's existence all the way up until really middle of 95, end of 95 is when we started to gain a little bit of momentum. But even with that momentum, nobody, including myself, said, okay, you know, we've got to gear up our licensing and merchandising program. We've got to bring in somebody from the outside that has – a lot of it is relationships. You know, A lot of it is you know, your Rolodex. Uh, when you bring in somebody from a Disney or, or a, a company that typically has a lot of licensing and merchandising, it's their relationships in the Rolodex that helps get things done. And we weren't looking at that point – at this point, I should say, in 1997, at bringing in that – caliber of a person. Now, I will admit to you that that was a mistake. We should have been looking forward. We should have been thinking farther out and planning for success three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. But not an excuse, just a fact. Things happen literally so fast that we were way behind the eight ball on that. It just wasn't something that was, it, it didn't get, it wasn't a priority. I don't know a better way to say it than that. It should have been, but it wasn't. How about these guys tearing it up here? Um, we should mention Eddie Guerrero is in the best shape of his career here. And he's fresh off of a torn peck, but he uses that time away clearly to, uh, you know, do what he can in other areas, including his diet. And this is probably the best Eddie had looked at this point. It is, you know, now I'm going to be judicious in how I say this, but it, you know, you look at superstars now in the ring and a lot of it has to do with diet and you know knowing more about working out and, and conditioning you know the everything has advanced so much over the last 20 years and i'm sure training and, and working out has too in terms of the ways people do it but I, I think when wrestlers back in the 80s and 90s when the emphasis was on you know being as big as you possibly could and um i i think that hurt a lot of careers you know, you look at Eddie here, look how fast he is, look how fluid he is. Uh, I think later on, as he got bigger and bigger and bigger, it actually, you know, took a toll on him, you know, inside of the ring. Look, when you're born, you have a certain set of genetics. You have your, you, you, your, your, your bone structure, your cartilage, your ligaments, all of those things that no matter how hard you train, you really can't improve upon all that much. And then when you put on 20, 25, 35, 40 pounds of muscle or more in some cases, that's a lot of stress on knees and joints and, you know, soft tissue that you can't really improve upon by working out harder and gaining weight uh, or putting on size. So I, I, I like what I see today in many respects because guys are just in much better condition overall and they're not as big as they used to be. And some of them are naturally, but they've got the bone structure and the genetics to support it. it you know, it's like me. I, you know, if I was in shape, I probably wouldn't weigh more than 185 pounds, uh, maybe less. Uh, but for me, if I decided I wanted to get big and go out and get myself up to 240 or 250 pounds, even if it looked good from the outside, 
you know, that's a whole lot of pressure on, like I say, bones, ligaments, you know, my body frame that isn't built to handle it. So that's a long-winded way of agreeing with you. Eddie looked like he was in great shape here, and I think his work reflected that. Not that he wasn't great afterwards. He certainly was. He had fantastic matches. But I liked him a little leaner and a little faster. Eddie Guerrero, of course, is um, one of the, I don't know, what would you say? All-time WCW, you know, if he hadn't left and WCW would have continued, I kind of think he would have been, before you guys were done, in line for the big belt. I mean, don't you think he could have tore it up with, Booker T or, or do you think he would have always been a rung lower just based on the way his perception was in the company? In all honesty, I don't think he would have, we would have ever given that opportunity to, to be a world champion. I'm not happy to say that. I'm not proud of it. Um, I'm just you know being honest about the, the perception, uh, within the, the wrestling industry at that time, including in the WWF, by the way, well, that but- certainly changed later but we're talking about 1997 1998 1999 i don't know that our company i mean it's hard to say would we have evolved would we have gotten to the point where uh, we realize that the audience doesn't really care if someone is six foot six and 300 pounds maybe we would have i don't know it's kind of hard to say well here's why i asked that though if you know before it's all done Benoit got a chance. I mean, Benoit was the world champ and I know he forfeited the next day and he, and he went home, but to me, you know, Benoit and, and, and Eddie Guerrero, same, same as far as in ring. Yeah. But I, you know, what, what was the reasoning behind Benoit getting that title? What was the logic behind it? I don't think it was, again, I wasn't not clear on what the backstage politics and the reasoning was as I sit here and do this podcast, but I'm almost convinced as I sit here without knowing any other information that it was probably more politics than anything else. Not because anybody saw him as a guy who could carry the company and be a world heavyweight champion for any length of time. I mean, it's one thing to put a belt on a guy or put the world championship on a guy uh, for a short period of time as a transition or to elevate that character for a period of time. Uh, there's a big difference in that and putting the championship on on a particular performer because you really feel that you can build a business long-term around it. I doubt that anybody really thought that they could build a business long-term around Chris Benoit as the world champion. All righty. Just my opinion. No, I mean, I I could... I, I'm not mad at it. Listen, I appreciate you sharing it. By the way, we're talking over a really, really good match. You should go out of your way to see it. Uh, if you're going to watch one match on this show, I, I think it should probably be this one. Uh, they only go six minutes and 40 seconds, but tons of false finishes, lots of pinning combinations. They're trying to pull out all the stops here and they're doing a good job. They did a good job. And these two guys had a lot of backstory together. Uh, bam, Eddie Guerrero, nice drop kick. Yeah, you won the title, but you're going to eat my boots. I like this. Get a little heat back. Come on. Get a little heat back. Um, I think, you know, the audience knew that when you got in the ring, when, when these two guys got in the ring, that they were going to have a hell of a match and be highly entertained just because of the backstory and their history. Holy smokes, Eddie Guerrero. That's a creative way to get your heat back. Coming off the top rope, 
Yeah, with a with a hell of a frog splash on top of the cruiserweight title. He gets three and a quarter stars, much like the match before it. But for me, you know, it's uh it's getting the job done in about half the time as Alex Wright and Ultimo Dragon. Next up, it's gonna be a pretty fun one too. It's Psychosis and Volano number four and five, uh, and Silver King and Hector Garza and Super Callow. I mean, these guys just everybody. Everybody is in this one. This is a, a luchador fest coming up in just a minute. Yeah, it sounds like a <laughs> it sounds like a, a a nightclub in Phoenix over Cinco de Mile. Cool. How about the uh, Valvoline sponsorship for the replays? That's exactly what you were looking for and what you had in mind with a Monday Nitro. These sort of sponsored segments and elements like this, right? Uh, you know, we've been talking in the last couple of weeks about Sturgis and. The, one of the reasons why we went to Sturgis and were willing to forego necessarily ticket sales in order to appeal to that gas and oil crowd. And Valvoline was one of those uh, sponsors that we were trying to, to appeal to. So you got it done. Not as much as we wanted to, but at least a little bit. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. What do you think of this uh, high voltage commercial here for fall brawl? You know, it's one of the criticisms that we hear a lot is, you know, the commercials for the pay-per-views were not congruent with the fucking storylines and like high voltage. That's not really selling any pay-per-views, is it? Absolutely not. That was a big challenge we had because we had to start promoting. We had to have all of our collateral material by collateral material. I mean, our videos, our commercials, our posters, uh, we had to have all of that stuff to our pay-per-view providers, DirecTV and, and so forth, uh, months and months in advance when we didn't know the storylines. We weren't sure who was going to be our main event in, in many cases, but we still had to to get them those materials out as quickly as we did, So, or as early, I should say, as we did. So oftentimes you would see commercials, whether it was a commercial or a poster or any other kind of collateral advertising support for pay-per-view that didn't feel like it had anything to do at all with the pay-per-view. But again, that was because in many cases we had to have those collateral materials and all that stuff to our pay-per-view providers six months, four months, three months at the very least in advance. And that was tough to do. So here you go. Four on four super callow. So we see him strutting to the ring here. What do you think of uh super callow's outfit with the, the sunglass hat mask combination? Always very colorful. That's the one thing that I like about, you know, luchadors and, and lucha wrestling is it's just, it's just so colorful. It, you know, it's almost, it's 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 quirky. You know, it's its own unique kind of world, and it borderline it's borderline humorous, but the action is often so great that while it looks kind of goofy and cartoonish the action makes it very believable and real and fun to watch. So it's, it's a, it's its own animal. That's for sure. Good action here in this match. That's what I mean. I love these Lucidor matches are just so fast paced and so crisp. How, uh, how crucial was Conan to helping facilitate all of these Lucidors to work with WCW? Absolutely critical. Absolutely. It wouldn't have happened without him. There was just nobody that had the relationship, you know, that I knew at the time. I'm sure there was somebody, you know, in the world, but there was nobody that I had access to or that I knew. Uh, it, it didn't come without problems. You know, Conan was a handful from time to time, as we've talked about, but we would have never been able to put together this quality, especially 
of uh, talent from Mexico had it not been for Conan. Help me understand, you know, the relationship there, because I, I know a lot of people sort of misunderstand that a little bit. I mean, some have even sort of freestyled or theorized that, oh, this must've been like, um, a fabulous moolah deal where Conan gets all these guys booked, but then he gets a part of their money. That's not the case. Not that I was aware of. I mean, I'm, I, I've heard that. I don't, I don't have any reason to believe that that was true. But there was leverage. You know, oh, certainly, for, for Conan. Sure. Conan, you know, was a, a very smart guy. You know, and and grew up in an environment professionally as a wrestler, where you had to kind of leverage every opportunity you could to to improve your position in any way you could. And certainly, Conan, you know, did that. I was going to say guilty of that. I don't even know if guilt is the right word. He certainly. Uh, took advantage of every opportunity, whatever it was, to leverage his role with regard to the luchadors. But uh, I never, you know, I never suspected him of double dealing necessarily. Double dipping. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, double dipping. Not double dealing. What do you think of uh, the criticism recently that these dives have come under? I think a lot of people online and I'm not exactly sure who spearheaded this or, or saying, Hey, this is stupid and it shouldn't happen. And it goes against all common sense that if a guy's really going to jump on you, why would you just stand there and let him? But that is sort of the tradition in Lucha Libre. Do you have a strong opinion on it one way or another? I think every situation is a little bit different. You know, I'll give you, you know, here's an example. Anytime I see two guys kind of up on the top turnbuckle where one's hammering away on the other, or they're getting ready, you know, for the next big bump off the top turnbuckle, I kind of groan to myself when I see that, because to me, that's very illogical. It makes no sense. Um, at the same time, the end result, the, the bump off the top turnbuckle when two guys are going over is a very, it, it's a kind of move that people react to. And it, this is always a hard thing about this business when you're trying to write and produce it, or if you're a fan of it, you, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself, not for anybody else. It's very easy sometimes to allow yourself to use logic when that logic supports your point of view. Sometimes logic doesn't support your point of view and you say, well, yeah, but it's creative license. It's the art, you know, it's entertainment. So, you know, logic and, and, and reason and entertainment sometimes don't always go hand in hand. There's a lot of things that you would see if you really sat down with a critical eye and said, okay, I'm going to make sense. Of, I'm going to make a list of all the things that are illogical about any wrestling show. I don't care whose it is. You're going to have a long list at the end of an hour or two. Um, because so much of what we do to entertain the audience isn't necessarily logical or wouldn't necessarily happen in a real fight. For example, I don't think anybody would come to a bar to get into a bar fight dressed like a luchador. I mean, how far do you want to take the logic um, position? You know, I think things have to be believable. They have to be plausible. They have to not be so uh, jarring that you look at yourself in the mirror and you ask yourself, why the hell do I watch that stuff? So you got to be a little bit careful. you got to walk that fine line. But I think it, it, there's also a lot of people who are critical or who feel the need to be critical just to sound smart that often selectively use logic 
when it right. supports their position. By the way, that's the, a lo- that was a long-winded answer, wasn't it? No, I, I, that's why people are listening. Hey, what do you think of this dinner in the movie promo where the guys reveal they're with the NWO and wearing Macho Madness shirts? Yeah, this is one of the, this was driven by uh, TNT. This was a Brad Siegel idea, and to his credit, he was trying to figure out a way. Uh, I should say uh, Jeff Carr. Uh, Jeff Carr was the program director over at TBS, not Brad Siegel. Uh, this was their attempt to leverage the wrestling audience because we had a, a very big audience and try to carry them into other programming. It's always been a big challenge with sports entertainment in particular or in general is it, it's, it draws big numbers. It's a tune in type of a show. It has a huge rabid loyal fan base, but oftentimes, you know, if you look at a program grid for a network, they may come for wrestling, but as soon as wrestling's over, they leave. Right. And that's not ideal. When you're programming a network, you want to program a network much like you build a wrestling format so that it builds throughout, you know, in a wrestling format, you want it to build throughout the course of an hour, if it's an hour show or a two hour show. You want that audience to start at one point and end at a much higher point and continually build throughout the show. Well, if you're a program director or you're running a network, you know, by seven o'clock at night, you want to start at one point in terms of ratings and you want to have those ratings build throughout the entire night, much like you would in a wrestling format. The challenge with wrestling is it's hard to create shoulder programming that really works. And this was their attempt. Not that, you know, a dinner in a movie crowd per se is going to be a wrestling crowd, but by integrating our characters into it and make them a, making them a part of it, the idea was that it would enhance the dinner and a movie show. And I think it was a, it was a smart idea. It made sense. And I think to a certain degree, it was effective. This was at least entertaining. How about the NWK <laughs> and then the hands come in from the side. It looks like light. he's jerking off Gene Okerlund there for a minute. It was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> How did I not see that until right then? <laughs> The NWOK. What are, what, are, what are they? Can you tell what they're trying to sell here? Oh, I see. It's just a dinner in a movie. It looks like popcorn in a box or something. Yeah, it's just the uh, hey, tune into uh, tune into the show. I don't think they're actually selling anything. I think it's just a prop to to put over the movie or the uh, segment. Uh oh. Have you ever been over to Paige's house? You ever been in his kitchen? No. There you go. <laughs> I've been to uh the DDP Performance Center and seen his uh his studio kitchen, but never been to his actual kitchen. I have not been to his uh performance center, which is really embarrassing. He's invited me down two or three times and I just never been able to make it. Now I'm just too damn busy, but I, I've heard a lot of great things about it from different people that have worked there. Oh man, diamond cutter right there on the floor. Well, kid I, took I, it like a champ. Yeah, he did. How about this? Next time, uh, uh, the, uh, the train comes rolling through and you guys are in town, you could swing through. It's not too terribly far from the arena. 20 minutes, yeah. maybe less. Yeah. And I do believe we're going to be in Atlanta sometime in the next couple of weeks. So that makes sense. Give it a whirl. That was a fun little segment for what it was. And I understand why they need to do it, especially being here on TBS, but coming up. 
Uh, we're getting to some of the big stars here on the show. It's going to be Ric Flair teaming up with Kurt, taking on Conan and six. And, uh, they're going to get about five minutes here, but, uh, we're moving things right along here on this very last clash of the champions. What sort of time clash of the champions was almost like a little miniature pay-per-view where it was paying off a long feud here. Clash of the champions is more, I hate to say it, but it's just kind of filler. Yeah. Uh, going back to what we were talking about when this thing started, it became less significant because of the success, success of Nitro. It became even more uh, of, uh, I wouldn't say more less significant, but that's not the right way to say it. It became even less of a priority once we knew that we were going to be building Thunder. So it, it is, we didn't do, we didn't do the send off that we certainly could have here. The show was good. I think the matches were great, but it didn't have that big event feel to it. Lee Marshall, Tony the Tiger. Great. By the way, I just looked up uh, that lava liquid to see if that was still a thing. Man, people are like hot for that. I can't believe it. Really? Yeah. It's uh, it's a little more rare maybe now than it used to be. Give everybody the strategy. Obviously, uh, this is a sponsored segment here. We're watching the 1-800-COLLECT-ON-THE-ROAD segment with Lee Marshall. It gave you guys an opportunity to plug where shows were going to be and where tickets were going to be going on sale soon. And, uh, it gave, uh, another thing for you to sell a sponsorship for, right? Well, you just took the, <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. It, it did two things It helped sell tickets, help make those events, those live events feel more important by giving it a little plug on TV the way we did. And obviously we were able to uh, ring the cash register in the process. So it's a good thing. I hate to be that guy, but, uh, <laughs> Unbelievably, some of our listeners, and we do have the smartest listeners in all of podcast land. Every time we talk about a segment like that, I'll get several tweets that says, Hey, was Lee Marshall really in Columbia when he made that call? (laughs) He was. He was. (laughs) I love you for that. Thank you very much. No, we sent him to all those towns so that it could be you know, organic and real and bring that, you know, local energy to the promo spot. So yeah, he definitely was. I love you for that. Thank you. By the way, we we ran through the nitro or the, uh, the ratings for this show, but the nitro prior to this got a 4.03 and a 6.8 share raw only got a 3.13 and a 5.0 share. And, uh, the big news that everybody's talking about, I guess there's two pieces here besides the Thursday announcement. One is Steve Regal, and I think there's going to be a sign in the crowd here at some point that's going to get confiscated. Maybe it's already happened on this show. Oh, by the way, that uh, this is kind of fitting. The robe that Ric Flair is wearing on his way to the ring right now is the one that ultimately Kurt is going to take and destroy and cut the sleeves off of and strut around with. And I think to this day, Big Show still has one of those sleeves at his house in his private collection, but... It's, it's fun to me that that's the rub that they destroy and here they are tag team partners together. But anyway, there's going to be a uh, sign in the crowd somewhere here referencing Steve Regal. Uh, we should remind everybody he's charged with a misdemeanor over an incident on the airplane quote. The belief now is that he accidentally urinated on the flight attendant, which caused them to have an emergency landing of the flight from Tokyo to Detroit in Alaska and boot Regal 
Norton and Bagwell off. He won't be deported, but he may not be allowed to fly for one year, which would mean WCW couldn't very well use him. So his status is very much up in the air. Pardon the pun. Yeah, I'm sure Mr. Regal would, or Steve Williams would prefer that we forget about that and not talk about it. I'm sure it was embarrassing to him. Uh, look, uh, Steve had, I don't think I'm breaking any news here. The, the, Steve had some issues with addiction at a point in his life. He certainly overcame them and went on to become a very successful professional and a responsible citizen and a great guy. But that's, you know, the danger, you know, people don't realize that Ambien in particular, and I don't know what Steve was taking at the time. The fact that he was coming back from Tokyo suggests to me that he might have had an Ambien or something like Ambien to help him, you know, adjust to his sleep patterns. But the problem with, you know, drugs like that, prescription drugs like that is, you know, you mix them with alcohol and everybody responds differently. And I've seen more than one occasion, one in particular, you know, on a flight from Australia that I was on where uh, someone took Ambien and had a couple cocktails and they don't realize where they are. They think they're in a bathroom. <laughs> they think they're in a men's room and they're actually in a closet or in one case in a first class bar on a Virgin Airlines flight. So it's it's really embarrassing it's unfortunate but it's also you know one of the things that happens when you abuse prescription drugs and certainly when you mix them with alcohol regal wrote it all started when i acquired some strange muscle relaxants off somebody i had no idea what they were didn't even know their name but i didn't care i took three or four on each of the first and second nights i was in japan and each night i was out like a light and slept all night when it was time to fly home, I had a few beers and took a couple of these pills when I got on the plane and we were due to arrive in Detroit to do nitro on the same day. Once we were airborne, I carried on with the drinking. The next thing I remember, I was being asked to get off the plane. I didn't have a clue what was going on, but everyone was very insistent. Please get off the plane. I walked down the stairs onto the tarmac in a daze. I had no idea where we were or what I was, what was going on. The next thing I knew, a policeman had handcuffed me and taken the little case I carry in my gear in when I'm traveling. I vaguely remember being thrown into the back of a van and the rest is a blank. When I woke and looked around me, I was in a 15 by 15 foot jail cell with bars all around and I wasn't alone. My new buddies were all wearing gang colors and staring at me and he had no idea what was going on. So, wow. Wow. I had, I mean, I, that had to be horrible. I just, as you're reading that, I, I guess out of Steve's book, I just can't imagine, can't imagine being in that position and how, when you finally wake up and you find yourself in jail, not knowing why you're even there, um, had to be a horrible feeling. When he appeared in front of the judge, he learns that he was quote, causing a disturbance on an airplane, urinating on the airplane and urinating on the foot of a flight attendant. And he says, I was right through the looking glass. Now I thought Alice in Wonderland time. There's no way I've done that. They must have it wrong, but don't say anything. Keep it to yourself. He just had absolutely no recollection of doing this whatsoever, but that makes the news everywhere. Yep. Unfortunate time for Steve, certainly. And, and for WCW, we should also mention that around this same time, Rick Martell was, uh, in the, uh, the WCW offices for an interview and 
I think uh, one of the things that was originally discussed amongst the boys or, or one of his ideas was to come in and team with uh, a Winnipeg wrestler named Don Callis, who we know now is doing commentary for new Japan. And, uh, I think most people know is, is one of the power players at impact. Do you remember this conversation about Rick Martell and Don Callis, maybe being a team? I, uh, if that conversation happened, it didn't happen, happen with me. He might've been in the offices talking to, you know, Kevin or Rick or depending on who was booking at the time, but it, it, it was not a conversation that I, I was a part of. Of course, we should mention that it's reported that WCW told Martell, they're not really interested in adding any tag team. So Martell wound up coming in on his own. Did, did you ever have a conversation with Don Callis otherwise? I did long afterwards when it looked like I was going to be part of the team that was going to acquire WCW from Turner Broadcasting. I spoke to Don about possibly being a uh, an announcer, had a number of different conversations with him about that, but n- n- no conversations in terms of him coming in as a you know member of the roster. Something else that makes the news in this era is uh, Kevin Green's pro wrestling career. It looks like it's probably going to be over. Because he just signed a, a new deal for 13 million bucks with the 49ers. And allegedly the 49ers do not like the idea of him dabbling in pro wrestling. So they ban it. So he essentially couldn't do anything there until maybe 2002. And we know that that's essentially it. When do you guys get the news that, Hey man, loved working with y'all, but my, my day job says I can't do it anymore. Uh, I got it from Kevin right away. Uh, we stayed in touch, and it, it, it didn't surprise me because the NFL, and, and it's even more strict now. They don't want you if you if you're a NFL player and you're under contract, especially a high profile one. There's a whole laundry list of things they don't want you to do in the off season. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, you know, probably uh, had a lot to do with that because of the motorcycle wreck that he got on. So I, I think there's a, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an NFL player and I'm not familiar with their contracts, but I've heard from a number of people who are that there's a list, long list of things they don't want you to do. Um, Cause you know, they, they don't, <laughs> they've got a big investment in you and they don't want you to get hurt riding motorcycles or skateboarding or hang gliding or, you know, whatever the case may be. So w- we knew Kevin told us right away and, Quite honestly, we weren't surprised. We we were more surprised that he was able to do it than we were when he told us he could no longer do it. By the way, it's worth mentioning that uh, Gene just asked Kurt, "Hey, uh, set the record straight. Are you are you not a horseman?" And he said, "No." They said, "What do you mean, no?" And and he's not saying he's a horseman. And Flair's getting pretty upset, saying, "No, tell him you're a horseman." And they're not doing it. And uh, we know that in just a few days on Nitro. Arn Anderson is going to offer him not just any spot, but his spot in the horseman. And when we come back, we're going to have our main event, Randy Savage and Scott Hall on one side, Lex Luger and DDP on the other. And, uh, I think we're going to get a little bit of a curveball before we get there with, uh, Kevin Nash here. I, I do want to ask though, cause I don't know, you know, how many more live shows we're going to get to do now that you are working 21 and a half hours a day or Vince McMahon and WWE, but how about, how about the talent in the ring right now? This is our main event of our last clash of the champions, but this isn't the segment that everybody's going to remember. So stay tuned after this match, we've got what everybody really remembers. 
but four legit, no doubt about it. Going to be hall of famers, macho man, diamond Dallas page, Scott hall, all there only a matter of time before Lex Luger goes in. I mean, a lot of talent here on top and this isn't even, you know, this, there's no sting here. There's no Hulk Hogan here. There's no Roddy Piper here. So you're, you're really tippy top talent, not there, but the tag titles, by the way, are on the line, even though Kevin Nash is one of the tag champs. He allows Randy Savage the right to defend the title. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, it's not certainly showing a lot of value for the belt, but you know, whatever. Yeah, no, that's weird. That was weird. Wish I wouldn't have done that. The um the rating continues to climb though. Let's run through it again. First segment 2.6, second segment 3.1, third segment 3.4. Alex Wright and Ultimo in the fourth segment, 3.5. We maintain a 3.5 for Jericho and Eddie. 3.6 is the Lucha match, or 3.7 rather, is the Lucha match. So whereas a lot of people would probably be critical of, oh, they were bad for ratings. Because you hear that a lot. They think that, oh, it just had to be, you know, giant English-speaking brutes. Not necessarily the case. 3.7 here. That did include the uh, dinner and a movie segment. And then the Ric Flair bit. Flair and Kurt and six and Conan that gets a 4.2. So big jump there. And then for our main event, 4.5 here, they're going to go eight minutes and 25 seconds. I believe no nine minutes, 52 seconds. My apologies. But what closes the show is what everybody's talking about. So listen, I know it's going to be here before we know it. Talk to me a little bit about the vulture whose idea this was, who booked it, whatever you remember. I think the vulture, and again, like so many of these ideas, it's just all of us sitting in a room and, okay, what can we do next? How do we elevate the story? How do we elevate the character? What can we do that we haven't done before? That was always a big you know, topic of conversation. Sure. And I'm not sure. It might have been Ellis Edwards because Ellis was – very much involved in a lot of the stunts and different things. Obviously the, you know, the repelling was all Ellis Edwards, all that stuff. Ellis was often a part of those conversations. And I think because, you know, Ellis Edwards, for our listeners who don't know him, Ellis Edwards came to WCW through Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan had met Ellis Edwards on a number of different movie sets that Hulk had been on. And Ellis was also the stunt coordinator for Thunder in Paradise. So Hulk, you know, had, a lot of experience with Ellis. That's how I got to know him. But Ellis had worked also on a lot of other, you know, as a stunt coordinator on a lot of other television shows and movie sets. So he he had a lot of contacts and he knew a lot of people. So as we were talking about different ideas that we could do to enhance that Sting Crow type character, I'm pretty certain that started with Ellis and he was able to find he was a vulture wrangler, <laughs> I guess. Um oftentimes when you do movies that involve animals, they call the people that coordinate that stuff wranglers. So uh, I'm pretty sure it was Ellis Edwards who reached into his bag of tricks and came out with a guy that had a trained vulture and just thought it was really cool. We brought, you know, he brought it to the arena. I had the guy bring it to TV and the week before and show us what it could and couldn't do. And, you know, what kind of, we, we explained to him what kind of shots we wanted to do and how we wanted to use the vulture. So we, we, (laughs) we tested the vulture in different situations and see how it would react in different parts of the arena just to figure out what, what we could do and what we couldn't do. So that's, that's how it all came about, but I thought it was pretty effective. It was pretty cool. 
want to ask a little bit about, um, Jeff Jarrett. We saw him in one of the opening matches here today, and I think his contract was going to expire in October. I think he came in in October of 96. He's on a one-year deal. We know he's going to return to the WWF, but was there any major interest in trying to re-sign him or was he difficult during that renegotiation process that he feel like it was maybe a coup and he could get a better deal going to the other show? Or what do you remember about the end of Jeff Jarrett here in WCW? Cause we're not too terribly far from that. Yeah, no, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of conversations with Jeff about it. Uh, he was negotiating with Nick Lambros at the, at the time, my personal take on Jeff was that he wasn't, he wasn't going to break into that main event spot as as you just pointed out, we were way top heavy with with that level of talent. Uh, so I looked at Jeff as being a valuable part of the mid to upper mid card. Uh, and I think Jeff saw an opportunity for himself to be positioned better. And Jeff is a smart guy and he was a smart guy. You know, he had to, if you're looking at it from a talent's point of view, you know that you bring a significant amount of equity to the ring. No matter whose ring you're in, you're valuable. It's just a matter of who values you more. WCW at this point in time in 1997 was, you know, blowing some pretty big holes in the WWF boat. Um, Vince was, or excuse me, Jeff smart enough to know that Vince McMahon probably needed more good talent, not less. And smart, uh, Jeff was smart enough to to leverage that opportunity. So I, it wasn't a, you know, it was nothing adversarial. There was no, you know hostility or tension or any of that in, in the negotiation. It was just that Jeff, here's, here's what we can do. Here's where we see you. And I think Jeff believing that he could probably negotiate a better deal in the WWF. It's really what it boiled down to. So there you see the uh, flyers coming down from the ceiling, more black and white balloons. We had tons of that to begin the show or to begin this match. Now, even more now celebrating, of course, the first year of the NWO. Um, we see Scott Hall here mugging for the camera. He's, he's making the torch here. I don't remember ever reading this. I want to cover this with you. So I'll just take Wade's words directly here. The relationship between Kurt Henning and Scott Hall may have an influence on the direction of Henning's character. While a lot of people are predicting he will turn on the horseman, perhaps in a reworked war games and join the NWO. Originally Henning was going to be with the horseman, but heat with Hall and Henning and the fact that Henning looked sluggish when he arrived, lowered him in management size. The heat between Hall and Henning goes back to the WWF days. Kurt got Hall into the WWF on Hall's original short run and Hall returned to become a main eventer as Razor Ramon and one time put up a fuss about having to do a job to Henning. And as a result, Henning, who is known for being a hardcore ribber, pulled some pranks on Hall. Neither have completely forgiven each other. Henning may turn on Flair, but not join the NWO. Henning was originally slated to turn on Flair at the Clash, but those plans changed. What can you tell us about, I guess, a few things here? Number one, did you have a different hope for Kurt? And then he shows up and he's sluggish, and that brings him down, in your opinion? Not at all. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure where that would have you know, how, how Wade would have, you know, I don't know where he would have come up with that. I just don't know. I don't even know how to react to that. It, it's just not true. Was there some sort of heat or some sort of, um, difference of opinion with, uh, Hall and Kurt? I never saw that. 
I, I was not made aware of that. They might have had heat, you know, residual heat from something that happened years prior. I I wasn't aware of it. Scott certainly never shared it with me. I didn't see anything kind of manifest itself backstage that would suggest to me that there was some issue or not. Uh, no, I mean, I this is really the first time hearing about it. So, um, I you know, I wasn't aware of it. Certainly didn't end up on my radar. Let's put it that way. The, uh, the segment here that we're going to end the show with, uh, is a, a rather memorable segment because of the bird. What can you, uh, what can you tell us about the execution of this? Because it has been criticized and written about, of course, as everything in wrestling has been, I guess, but was this the execution that you hoped for? Well, I'm going to have to see it here. I mean, I don't remember it. You know, it's, it's not embedded into my brain, so I have to see it to tell you if it was executed the way I wanted it to be or not. But well, I, I know that I know that you were trying to get off of our our outbursts and rants about dirt sheets, but I feel like I've got to do this one. Uh, if the 821 turns out to be the final clash, it'll probably be best remembered by one of those unfortunate screwed up angles that seem to only happen at clashes. Remember when Shockmaster fell through the wall? Anyway, after the main event. They built to the sting appearance. The angle was built up on Monday. The sting would have to speak to JJ Dillon about what he wanted or WCW was going to break off negotiations with him. As it turned out, JJ isn't even part of this planned angle. Sting is in the rafters while the NWO celebrating a victory in the main event with him was a buzzard. The idea was that when they would ask sting what he wanted, the buzzard would fly from the rafters to the ring as the lights in the building were turned off with a note that said, Hogan's soul. Well, somewhere on the buzzards track, the note fell out of his clutches and he wound up on the ropes with a group of NWO guys in the ring, trying to avoid outwardly laughing and crying at the screw up with several minutes left to kill and nothing to do on a live television show. Actually, even if the angle had gone as planned, it would have been a stupid finish to the show. So there you go. That's the, the criticism. Uh, is this the way you remember it? That. This bird is going to fly down and he's supposed to have a note. He doesn't. And I think you motion like you're grabbing something through him and s turn your back to the camera as if you're trying to read it, but it's fucking weird. Yeah, it's different. No doubt about it. <laughs> it's different. Look, you're going to try different things. You know, did anybody think that you could build an angle with a guy for, the, for over a year without him talking? I mean, if that wouldn't have worked, everybody would have said, oh, that was just fucking weird. Why would you do that? Look, the only people that, you know, uh, can consistently find new ways to criticize other people's work when it comes to creative are people that have never been in creative. Yep. You know, it's really easy to do. It's simple after the fact to have all the answers and to have all the best ideas. Uh, but when you're building television 52 weeks a year year after year after year when you're constantly in a position of trying to come up with new ideas new ways of telling stories new gimmicks new angles new this new that some of them are going to work some of them aren't you know but i think the dumbest idea is to not try and you know for people that like to criticize when a new idea doesn't work um yeah you can do that and the alternative is you watch the same thing over and over and over every week, and that gets pretty boring too. So, look, if, if 
it, it didn't work the way it was originally intended. It didn't work. It was a high-risk move. You're bringing a wild animal, in this case a bird, you know, into the ring to perform a stunt. And even though it was a trained bird, as we talked about earlier, uh, it, was, it was trained to work on movie sets and, and, and had done this type of thing before um, over and over and over again. You know, the fact that this was live TV. You know, it's not a movie set. You don't get a take two or a take three or a take 20, which is often the case when you're working with animals, real animals, not human oh, animals. Did you guys work <laughs> through this earlier in the day? Yeah, we did. That's why we That's why we felt we could pull it off. I guess we talked about that earlier. You know, when Ellis brought the guy in with the bird, we set it up and, you know, we walked through this scene to make sure that it was something the bird could do and, and we felt comfortable with it and we did all the way up until the time that it really mattered. It's so weird to think about all of you guys gathering together before the doors open with sting in the rafters, uh, with this bird on his hand and then the lights go out and then the bird appears like, well, we didn't, we didn't rehearse with the whole group. It was the handler. Uh, up in the rafters, it wasn't Sting. It was the handler, handler up in the rafters. You know, cue the bird. <laughs> made sure the bird, or made sure the bird landed where it was supposed to land, or at least that David Crockett in the truck knew about where that area was going to be, so we could cover it. But uh, we didn't rehearse it, you know, with a whole group of guys in the ring. So you're going to make we were, the approach, and we, supposedly he's supposed to have a note here, but there's nothing there. I'm sorry. Supposedly this bird is supposed to have some sort of note that he's going to pass to you that says Hogan soul, but there's nothing there. Is that the way you remember it? Yes. Yep. How, how, I mean, what are you, what's going through your mind right now? What the fuck do we do now? <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, the cameras are on you. We got time. And it's like, okay, how do we sell this? You know? And the idea I think was to sell it, you know, be scared. It was, you know, you could look at this two different ways, you know, if, you know, with the vulture coming down, it was obviously Sting's gimmick, right? It coming down into the ring. It would have been sufficient if that alone, without the note, with no note, it would have been su sufficient had we sold it properly to be like, what the fuck? What is that supposed to mean? And, you know, a little intimidated by this ugly creature. Um, it probably would have worked okay, but I think it was the awkwardness of not knowing what to do that really killed it. And like that, Clash of the Champions is done. No moss. <laughs> and no more birds either. <laughs> Although I did use, I, actually, I did use a bird in TNA with Sting a couple years later. I remember that. Yeah. When I, when I was trying to Google to find more information, I saw that and I thought, surely that didn't happen on Eric's watch. And now you tell me. Indeed. Yeah, no, but that was an easy, that was a pre-taped segment. So it's a lot easier to pull shit like that off in a pre-taped segment than it is on live TV. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and give everybody a bit of a rundown. Cause I'm pretty fired up about this. We've recently, uh, come together and said, Hey, here's what we're going to do in our upcoming shows. So we do have, uh, several of our next shows mapped out and I'll, I'll run those through next week. We've already teased it. It's, uh, Arn Anderson. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, we're also going to be covering on September the 9th. Bischoff goes home. Believe it or not, that is the exact 20 year anniversary of when Eric found out that he gets to take a hiatus from WCW. 
but things are going to be much brighter on September 16th. It's going to be all about fall brawl 96. Now this is the first pay-per-view that got me back into wrestling. You've got the NWO on one side, Lex Luger, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and sting on the other. But this is just six days after sting has, or quote unquote sting has turned his back and attacked Lex Luger. We're going to do something totally different on nine 23. That'll be when we revisit the famous Monday night raw live from Madison square garden on September 22nd, 1997. Famously, this is where Steve Austin would stun Vince McMahon and get arrested. Cactus Jack would return a wild and crazy raw from 1997 folks really dug when you watched a raw before. So we'll revisit a hot one from 1997. And then on September 30th, probably our most requested thing that we still haven't done. I'm calling it total nonstop Bischoff. We're going to talk about when you decided to join TNA and you guys uh, made the announcement around that same time, I guess, gosh, at this point, it would have been 10 years ago. Uh, because I think the, uh, the Monday night version of impact debuted in January of 2010. So lots of fun stuff coming your way as we round out and finish out, uh, here in August and go all the way through the end of September. Did anything in that lineup stand out to you as being particularly intriguing or dreadful? Not dreadful. You know, uh, I think the, uh, the Eric goes home story, I think should be pretty interesting i'm looking forward to talking about our next week much like you are it'll be a really fun show um but no i'm, I'm looking forward to all of it quite honestly and don't forget to uh give us a call let us know how your dick's doing at 833-83 weeks and of course the hotline the 83 weeks hotline is brought to you by boost mobile we really appreciate their support until next week check us out tell a friend all about 83 weeks you can follow us on social media at 83 weeks he is at e bischoff i am at hey it's conrad and we are out of time we'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Derek bischoff John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.